It's good to be together. My name is Dan Song, and I'm one of the pastors here at Restoration. We're glad that you're with us, whether you're in person or whether you're watching online. I'm going to invite you to turn your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 8. 2 Samuel chapter 8. If you don't have a Bible, that's cool. We got Bibles for you underneath the chair in front of you, and you could use one of those. If you're using a church Bible, uh, turn to page 260, 260, and we're going to be uh, looking at 2 Samuel chapter 8. Now, originally, I, it, was, it can look like it's a throwaway passage. You might, once we read it, go, huh, I wonder what Dan's going to do with that. Um, we were actually going to just go skip to chapter 9, but as Jenny Lynn has just mentioned, you know, with the town hall next week, I looked at chapter 8, and I was like, you know, there's a lot here that we could actually tie to what's, what we'll be sharing next week and what I'll share a little bit today as we think about the life of our church. And so uh, we'll be looking at that in chapter 8. Last week we looked at chapter 7, uh, looking at the Davidic promise uh, that God gives to David about um, what we'll see is building his house forever. And so read along with me, starting in verse 1. And then we'll read the entire passage. I told the first service, uh, there's a lot of names here which are not familiar, so bear with me and be patient with me if I do fumble along with some of these challenging names. Starting in verse 1. <clears throat> After this, David defeated the Philistines and subdued them. And David took Methegamah out of the hand of the Philistines. And he defeated Moab, and he measured them with a line, making them lie down on the ground. Two lines he measured to be put to death, and one full line to be spared. And the Moabites became servants to David and brought tribute. David also defeated Hadadezer, the son of Rehob, king of Zobah, as he went to restore his power at the river Euphrates. And David took from him 1,700 horsemen and 20,000 foot soldiers, and David hamstrung all the chariot horses, but left enough for a hundred chariots. And when the Syrians of Damascus came to help Hadadezer, king of Zobah, David struck down 22,000 men of the Syrians. Then David put garrisons in Aram of Damascus, and the Syrians became servants to David and brought tribute. And the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. And David took the shields of gold that were carried by the servants of Hadadezer and brought them to Jerusalem. And from Betah and from Berathai, cities of Hadadezer, King David took very much bronze. When Toi, king of Hamath, heard that David had defeated the whole army of Hadadezer, Toi sent his son Joram to King David to ask about his health and to bless him because he had fought against Hadadezer and defeated him. For Hadadezer had often been at war with Toi. And Joram brought with him articles of silver, of gold, and of bronze. These also King David dedicated to the Lord, together with the silver and the gold that he dedicated from all the nations he subdued, from Edom, Moab, the Ammonites, the Philistines, Amalek, and from the spoil of Hadadezer, the son of Rohab, king of Zobah. And David made a name for himself, and when he returned from striking down 18,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt, then he put garrisons in Edom. Throughout all Edom he put garrisons, and all the Edomites became David's servants, and the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. So David reigned over all Israel, and David administered justice and equity to all his people. Joab, the son of Zeruiah, was, was over the army, and Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahilud, and Ahimelech, the son of Abiathar, were priests, and Sariah was secretary, and Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, was over the Cherethites and the Pelethites, and David's sons were priests. This is the word of the Lord. 
I made it. <laughs> Pray with me, and we'll get, and we'll look into God's word this morning. Lord, we thank you for your word to us. Uh, whether it's names that are challenging or stories that seem so far off, Lord, we know that this is your word to us, breathed out, so that we might be transformed and become like you. That we might consider uh, the ways in which we might follow you, and to see your kingdom here reign on earth as it is in heaven. So do that good work we ask. Give us humble hearts. Give us ears to hear. Give us eyes to see. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Early on in dating who is now my wife, we were actually uh, dating long distance. So phone calls became very important in our relationship and actually became very regular in the life of our relationship and dating. Well, she likes to remind me, Hannah does, of this one time early on when we were dating of what I said on the phone call. And this is what I said. And she reminded me of what I said. She said, quote, you're too precious. I can never, ever get mad at you. (laughs) And according to Hannah, that promise lasted two months and one week. But who was counting? Obviously not me. I share this because as I think about empty promises, that's what I think about in this passage. Now, we as human beings, as broken people, as fallen people, we break promises all the time, right? It could be with our spouse. It could be with our children. It could be to your parents. It could be to your friends or your classmates. We break promises over and over and over again. But here in this passage, in what follows from 2 Samuel 7 to this passage that we read, or we read, God is faithful to his promises. His promises are always sure and certain. And what you get here is a glimpse of what God had promised to David, that I'm going to establish a house that will reign forever, a dynasty, that through your line, David, your throne will have no end. That was a promise last week, right? That as, as one commentator said, death could not annul it, sin could not destroy it, and time couldn't exhaust it. That was a promise. And then immediately as we read chapter 8, what happens? God begins to fulfill the promise that he made to David. And that's what we're going to see here. And I think all too often the challenge for us is that we believe the lies that God is not sure or certain in keeping his promises whether it's circumstances in the home, in your workplace, in relationships, we always doubt, don't we, that God will keep his promises. Now, sometimes we make up things that aren't true of what God promises, but all in all, when we look at Scripture, we go, is God truly for me? Is God with me? These are the questions we ask, and the the thing that this author wants us to know is yes. His promises are certain. They are a yes and an amen. And I want us to just briefly look at that through three things that we see in this story. First, it's the growth of God's kingdom. Secondly, it's the riches of God's kingdom. And lastly, the justice of God's kingdom. So let's just look here, starting with the growth of God's kingdom. Now, if you look at these opening verses of chapter 8, the writer is making it very clear that David, the king of Israel, is expanding and growing his rule and reign in Israel. 
In verse 1, immediately after God makes this promise to David, what happens? David defeats the Philistines and subdues them. They're west of Israel. Then in verse 2, he defeats the Moabites who are east of Israel. Then in verse 3 and 5, we see Zobah and the Syrians being defeated who are north and northeast of Israel. And then lastly, when you jump down to verse 13, who does David defeat? The Edomites who are south. Of Israel. That's not a coincidence. What you are seeing the writer describe to us is that God gives victory for David north, south, east, and west. Wherever David goes, he is growing David's reign and ultimately God's kingdom. And that's what we see, and we need to be reminded of that because twice the writer reminds us that David is not the one building the kingdom. Who is it? It's God, right? In verse 6 and verse 14, what does the writer say twice in this passage? And the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. God is the one who gives victory. David is not the one building it. And actually, though this comes off of the promise and the heels of what God says in 2 Samuel 7, remember, This goes even farther back than what God promised David in 2 Samuel 7. This goes back to Genesis 12. This goes back to Genesis 17. And what does God promise Abraham? God says, look at the stars. Try to count how many stars are in the sky. And so will be your descendants. And then he says in chapter 17, look at the land of the Canaanites. That will be yours. And here in 2 Samuel 8, God begins to bring out the fruition of his promises to God's people. We see the growth of God's kingdom, but we also have to make certain that this is not us doing it or David doing it. It is God himself. And you've heard this from me many times. I do not like and I feel very uncomfortable when people say we are building God's kingdom. It's just not true. God is the one who does it. What we are as a church is that we are a visible sign. We are a visible sign of the kingdom that God is growing in this world. And that kingdom is not the United States of America. And I know for some of us, we get nervous and our anxiety rises when we think about what's going on in our world and in our nation. And we're like, God's kingdom is shrinking. No. As Abram Kuyper said, When God looks at every square inch of this world, what does he say? It is mine. God's reign and rule is over all, every square inch of this world, and he is in full control, and he is absolutely providential, and he is growing his kingdom, and we are a visible sign of that. Now, what does that look like for a small little church here in the middle of St. Louis? Well, we are a visible sign of that. And God has been gracious to us. If you're here on Easter, you saw us packed to the brim. When I talk to people outside the church who are not Christians, or even those fellow pastors around the U.S., and, I, and they say, how have you been doing? I'm like, we grew 150 people over COVID. And God has been gracious in that. And one of the things that we need to think about and consider is how does the Lord want us to be that visible sign as we continue to grow? And one of the things that we'll be talking about at the town hall meeting is we need to really consider and pray about what it looks like to be a church planting, a planting church. We were recipients of that as 
Grace Presbyterian as Crossroads and now Restoration? And how do we now then go and plant other churches in St. Louis so that the visible sign of the kingdom can continue to be spread here in this St. Louis area and the greater St. Louis area for that matter? But also, what does it look like for us as our church building when we're outgrowing this space, when we need so many more classrooms and our children are growing and expanding, when we're talking about a fellowship hall and we're such a relational, communal church? What does it look like to have more office space as our staff grows, to have a, to have a, a youth room as our youth grows? These are the things we need to be really praying about and, and, and considering as a church together to think about a building search to be thinking about church planting in the next three, five years. But remember this, that God is the one who grows and builds, not us. And we get to be a beautiful picture, a visible sign of what God is doing. The second thing, though, that we see in God's keeping his promise from chapter 7 to 8 is the riches of God's kingdom. Right there in the middle of this chapter, we see this in verse 7. Read along with me. David took the shield of gold that were carried by the servants of Hadadezer, and if you jump down a little, and the king David took very much bronze. And then the second half of verse 10, Joram brought with him articles of silver, gold, and of bronze. So in the growth of God's kingdom or David's kingdom, he finds himself with all of these riches, shields made of gold and bronze and silver, and they find all this bronze and gold. But what does David do with all of these riches? Verse 11. These also King David dedicated to the Lord together with the silver and gold that he dedicated from all the nations he subdued. He doesn't keep it for himself. He dedicates it and gives it to the Lord. This is God's wealth. This is God's doing. This is the cattle on a thousand hills that belongs to God. And he's recognizing even in his conquest, even in his triumphs and expanding the kingdom, and all the gains are not for him, but for God. He recognizes that all of this belongs to the Lord. Now, one of the things that I'm thankful, you know, you hear my daddy issues and, you know, every family has their problems. But one of the things I'm actually thankful that my dad and my mom taught me when I was a little kid was how we are called to be stewards of what God has given us, that we don't own anything, but they belong to the Lord. And I remember getting my first job as a 14-year-old, getting my work permit, and I worked at this local grocery store called Jewel up in Chicago. And I was a bagger and who had to bring in all the carts, right? But I was pretty much in the dead heat of summer. I was outside taking carts back in from the stations and all the loose carts, please Take your carts to the stations because it really makes it a burden on people like me as a 14-year-old to, to find it all. Anyway, the point is I was making $3.15 an hour. And I remember getting my first paycheck and going, yes, I've worked so hard and I'm going to spend whatever I want to spend as a 14-year-old. And my mom and dad sat me down and said, I want you to give all, you know, $20, whatever it was, back to God. Like give it to the church as your first fruits of what God has blessed you with. And then the second goes to us as your parents. <laughs> now I don't know about the second one, but I appreciated what my parents taught me that everything that is mine, whether it's my family, the money we make, 
the house, the ways that God has blessed us with goods and material possessions, they're not mine. The Lord has called me to steward them well. And here David stewards it well by giving it and dedicating everything back to the Lord. What does that look like for us? Right? Think about not only finances, but think about the gifts and the ways that God has wired you and the talents he's given you. Think about the way you spend your time. Even think about Sunday mornings when there's seven days in a week, right? We always say Sunday is the first day of the week. And why that's so important is because we are saying that we want to commit the first day, the first fruits of the week to God, to spend together in his home, to worship him, to, to be together as God's, the family of God and the body of Christ, to be able to say, though I'm so busy, I'm going to Sabbath well on the first day of the week because the Lord deserves my time. What does it look like to Sabbath? What does it look like to give of your offering and of your money to tithe for those who consider this your home? And now whether it's 10% or less or more, pre-tax, post-tax, that's not the issue and that's for another day. But at the heart of it, right, money is not evil, it's neutral. And David's going to run into this. Kings will run into this issue too with Solomon. But it's how do you view your money? And are you willing to be able to give sacrificially, joyfully, generously, if you consider this your home, to be able to pursue the mission that God has called this little, little church in the midst of this entire world to be able to pursue the mission that God has called us to in St. Louis? What does it look like to sacrificially and joyfully give, but lastly, of your gifts? What does it look like to bless and to see the flourishing of others for the common good of this city and our own community, to be able to use your gifts for others and not to hoard, but to figure out ways that I can serve and I could give of my time and energy and my talents so that they'll be flourishing in the kingdom of God, that we might be a visible sign of God's kingdom here in St. Louis. But there's a last thing we see here in how God, we see God keep his promise. We see here the justice of God's kingdom. It's this last portion of this chapter that we just read. And in this last portion, what we see is the summary of this entire chapter. It's a summary that the writer says. And so read with me what this writer says. He says, so David reigned over all Israel and David administered justice and equity to all his people. This, God, David's reign and rule is growing south, north, east, west. And what do we read here? David administered justice and equity to all his people. This should create in us a longing for justice and shalom and peace in our city and in our world and in your communities, whether it's your school or your workplace or your neighborhood, your family. What we see is a glimpse, just for a moment, right? Because in this broken world and where David is a sinful man, it's not going to continue for long. But in this brief moment, after God had promised that he's going to bring, a build a house that will last forever, we see justice rule and reign. Not just the absence of peace. Or the absence of conflict, I mean or the absence of war, but we actually see reconciliation, justice, enemies receiving justice, but also those who are oppressed receiving justice. 
And here in this little moment, we get to see that happen. And that hasn't happened throughout this entire book of Samuel. Remember in 1 Samuel, if you were with us a year ago or less than a year ago, remember Eli, the priest, and his sons? Remember Saul? There was no justice. Rather, justice was perverted and misused. They used their power for their own gain. But here, while God's kingdom is building, David is able to administer justice and equity to all people. And ultimately, though this is just a glimpse, we get that glimpse every now and then, right? And ultimately, we see that it's through Jesus Christ that promises us this justice and equity because of his own life. One scholar said it this way, David's reign was only a shadow of the glorious reign of Jesus. Jesus came with justice and equity, but what did he do with them? Did he give to every person according to what they deserve? No. He took justice and equity and combined them with mercy and love to make a beautiful solve for needy sinners like us. He mixed it all on the cross and declared justice will be satisfied here. See, Jesus ultimately is the one who goes to the cross to bring justice and equity for all. For every square inch of this world, he's bringing that. And we get to see glimpses of that. But what does that actually mean for us? Well, I think David shows us a way. He says, while David is the one that administers the justice and equity, what does he do in verses 16, 17, and 18? I'm not going to read it because there's way too many names. But he, he brings others along to be able to do that work of justice and equity. Right? Now here we get a bunch of dudes' names, but because of Jesus' work on the cross and the new covenant, we get to see the beautiful expression of that, not just with men, but we get to see that with men and women of all different ethnicities, of all different stages of life. And we got to see a little bit of that even through Abigail, right? Abigail, who literally laid down her life for the sake of her husband, who was an absolute fool. And we get to see that in the New Testament with people like Phoebe, who was an official deacon of the church. And that's what we want to be able to do moving forward. We want to be able to not only have elders, but we really want to see deacons like this administer justice and equity. One of the roles of the deacon is to serve and practice mercy. It's the gifts of service and helps. And so far, we've only had men but we want to be able to bring women alongside them to be able to work together so that we could really see the flourishing of justice and righteousness, not only in our own church, but in our communities. Like some of you might not know this, but way back when we actually had women deacons. But when we merged with Crossroads, one of the things that was a non-negotiable for Crossroads is that they only believed in men deacons, male deacons. And so talking to our women deacons, they, they understood that. And for the greater good of the church, they were willing to step down. But now that we're our own church, we want to be able to go back to that. To be able to see men and women come alongside to practice and administer justice and mercy. And to see the visible sign of God's kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. So what does that look like? For women who might have those gifts of service, and of helps, and of mercy. We want to lift them up and come alongside our brothers and to work together to see the flourishing of God's kingdom here. 
As we close, Dale Ralph Davis, who's a commentator, wrote, wrote a commentary on 2 Samuel. He shares about his wife, Barbara, and she had grown up her entire life in Kansas. But because of them getting married and because of his work, they ended up moving to Mississippi. And so she had not been in Kansas for over 20 years, and she really missed Kansas. So one of the things that she decided to do was plant a garden in her backyard full of native Kansas plants and flowers and grass so that every time she peered outside, she would have some Kansas. This is how Dale Ralph Davis said, he said, Barbara had made a bit of Kansas appear in Mississippi. Now, what does What is Dale getting at? He's saying this text invites us to do the same. Chapter 8 does. We are not Davidic kings, nor will we perfectly do what is just and right as Jesus will when we visibly and fully bring his kingdom at his second coming. But we ought to plant kingdoms of righteousness in our own present plots, wherever that might be for you. Be in your workplace or in your families or in your neighborhoods. Your task, our task, is not to leave doing what is just and right to elders or just deacons or others, but to be able to peel off that kingdom ideal and stick it over the circumstances of your own life, that you must be doing what is just and right for your own neighborhood, for your own friends, and even for your own enemy. To be able to see what God is doing and building his kingdom and growing it to be able to see justice enacted and to see the riches of God's kingdom grow, not because we're doing it, but because God is. And God invites us to do that, to plant little kingdoms, visible signs here at Restoration and in the greater St. Louis area. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the work that you are doing, that you not only gave victory for David, but you also give us opportunities to be able to see your kingdom be a visible sign in our workplaces and here at our church and in our families and neighborhoods. So Lord, I pray that you would help us to do that well. Though we are broken and we don't do it perfectly, Lord, we know that it is only because of your grace and mercy. That's why we even come to the table, to be strengthened and to know, Lord, that we cannot do it on our own. So strengthen us this morning as we come to the table so that we might be nourished to be able to go back out Monday through Saturday and to be a beautiful blessing to others because of the work that you are doing. Do that good work we ask as we come to the table. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.